Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Shall I take your order, or do you need a minute? Yes, I'll be ready. Just buying a car on Carvana. What? It's super convenient. I already got pre-qualified in two minutes. All I had to do was answer a few questions. What? That's handy. Yeah. Now I'm customizing my down and monthly payments. What? That's an exquisite deal. And just like that, Carvana's delivering my car in a couple days. What? Oh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, I'll have the burrito. Visit Carvana.com to finance your next car. Financing subject to credit approval. Delivery fees may apply. Well, you've heard me before. The CBD industry is pretty much the Wild West when it comes to claims and critiques. But while science is still catching up with the industry, there seems to be overwhelmingly positive response to CBD. Luckily, our good friends at Social CBD are raising the industry's standards for testing. They like to say they are test-obsessed. Social CBD works closely with their suppliers and multiple third-party labs to ensure you are getting exactly what the package says you are getting. High-quality CBD with 0.0% THC. And Social CBD wants you to be skeptical. That's why they put a QR and batch code on every package. This allows you to check all the test results for the product, not general testing, the specific batch of product you bought. Social CBD just came out with a brand new line of products, broad-spectrum CBD gummies that come in three flavors, lemon, red raspberry, and peach, mango. And just like their dedication to the highest testing standards, they're using state-of-the-art manufacturing equipment that creates their gummies without cross-contamination. Again, this is a company that really cares when producing their products. To learn more, go to drdrew.com slash socialcbd. That is my website, drdrew.com slash socialcbd. And for a limited time, you can save 20% at checkout with the code drdrew. That is D-R-D-R-E-W, 20% off. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dr. Drew Podcast. Uh, keep the winds in the sail of the Corolla Pilot Ship. Uh, check out drdrew.tv, too. Uh, we do a, a Sunday about 3 p.m., live Q&A show. Do check that out. We'll send you a blast if you sign up at drdrew.tv. And uh, don't forget me and Adam and also After Dark. It's all there at drdrew.com. Today I'm welcoming Dan Paris. He, you can follow him at Dan Paris, spelled P-E-R-E-S-N-Y on Twitter at Dan Paris. Also on Instagram at Dan underscore Paris. And the book is As Needed for Pain, A Memoir of Addiction. It's available now in all the usual places. Dan, welcome. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Uh, Dan was editor-in-chief at Details Magazine for 15 years. And uh, were you addicted during that time? I was for the first half. For the first half of that time. So you've been all over the world covering W and and Details, right? Yes. Tell me about your career and then we'll sort of weave the addiction story into that. Yeah, no problem. I um, worked at W Magazine, which is a women's fashion magazine. Did you launch it? It was an unusual place for me to land. I did not launch it. It had been running for a number of years before I got there. And uh, I was sent to Paris for them, and I lived and worked in Paris, um, and then was brought back to edit Details Magazine, um, which I did for 15 years, and uh, it was a blast. I bet. In New York? In New York, yes. And during that time, got strung out on something. I did. Yeah. I did. Uh, Fairly, uh, unfortunately, a fairly common story in many respects. Orthopedic injury. back surgery. Oh, shocking. And Um, uh, here, take these 60 Vicodin or Oxycontin. Pretty much both. And and I was off to the the races. Uh, I I developed just a massive addiction to uh, to opiates. Let's kind of break down how how it unfolded because people need to hear it because it's always the same. Well, first of all, did you have any alcohol history before? 
I never really drank alcoholically. Uh, I, I, I identify as an alcoholic. Um, I've been sober for uh, since 2007, mm-hmm. uh, and so I don't drink. But um, no, so not no really. antecedent hints that you had the addictive potential. I mean, not really. You know, um, there was some pot smoking in college and and things like that. But but nothing. Were you into extreme sports or anything? Or no, no, nothing. no, no hint. In your family, is it there? No, no, it's not. Huh. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Very. What's your ethnicity? I'm Jewish. Oh, that's a very special kind of addiction. <laughs> that's <laughs> so Ashkenazi Jew. Is the only time you see stimulant or opiate addiction without an antecedent history of alcohol or a family history of alcohol? Is that is that true? Absolutely, that's amazing. Yeah, and and the opiate addiction can be tougher to treat sometimes in Ashkenazi Jew populations. I don't know why. I've never figured out why, but sometimes they they hang in a little more before they <laughs> before they're willing to let go. Uh, that was certainly the case with me. Yeah. There's no question about it. Yeah. You know, I mean it was like lighting a fuse for me. I mean I was really off and running yeah. and uh, and taking huge amounts too by the way. Mm. I mean um but yeah, I mean it starts it starts it's a it's a fairly common tale like I said, you know. So you the, get your back surgery, you go home, you're taking six a day. You're doing fine. I'm taking it as prescribed yep. and uh, six six or so a day, mm-hmm. and um, but the maybe one day I just was feeling a little bit more pain, and I, I a took, week later, two weeks later. Uh, in my case, it was probably a week later, mm-hmm. and uh, so instead of taking two every four hours, I took three mm-hmm. every four hours, which led to four, which led to an extraordinary love affair. Um, right that, then, you that, like you like fell in love. I, I did. I, there was a brief hiatus. I, I was sent to Paris to work for W Magazine. Um, France is one of these countries that very wisely um, really doesn't even have these drugs, mm. and so I couldn't get them over there. Uh, when I moved back to New York to take the job at Details, I literally called my doctor within 24 hours of, of landing back in New York. So take me still back from the, the back surgery. So now we're a month out from the back surgery, let's say. How much are you taking then? I was probably taking – I was probably doubling the dosage. I was probably – had gone from two every four hours to four every four hours. You're still having pain? I was not still having pain. And um, and I really enjoyed the buzz that I got from mm-hmm. it, and um, didn't think much of it, quite frankly. And and did it give you energy? Uh, it, it in time, I felt that it gave me energy. Mm-hmm. In time, um, like some people, I don't. I'm not a coffee drinker, but like some people, like don't talk to me until I have my coffee. Mm-hmm. It was don't talk to me until these pills kick in. Mm-hmm. And I really felt that not only did it give me energy, but that I was performing at a higher level right. with them flowing through my bloodstream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I mean, listen, it's, it's, uh, it is, um, it's a pretty profound addiction. Did you withdraw when you went to Paris? Um, I, not only did I withdraw when I went to Paris, but uh, you know, my stomach was a wreck because uh, it, you know, it really kind of – Mm-hmm. binds things up um but eventually I, I i was fine i was there for two and a half years and i would get i was sent with an emergency prescription of a hundred extra strength vicodin fantastic which i gobbled up pretty quickly 
um, uh, but ultimately dealt with whatever sort of detox yeah. I needed to deal with while there. And um, but the seed had been planted; it was it was there. And I thought mm. about them often, the way some might sort of think of a, a, a romantic interest that they're away from. You know, it yep. was it was something that was on my mind. Um, but I managed, and then when I would come back to to New York uh, to see family or to have meetings, you know, whatever, I would I would try to get another big script to to take me back. What'd you tell the doctors? I would tell the doctors, and I had this down to to a science, and and um, you know, I got very good at conning these these doctors as as addicts tend to to do. Uh, so it was. It uh, I would tell them I was feeling pain. It was radiating down my leg. I was, um, you know, struggling. I was traveling a lot. It was you know it was a real sort of burden for me. And so when they'd write a script for thirty, would you say, "I doctor, I think I need a hundred. Yeah, I mean, listen. <laughs> so. I, I, even before they put pen to paper, I, I would <laughs> put, specify. I would put my request in. Mm. Um, it wasn't until I moved back from Paris. Uh, and took the job at details that things got got pretty unmanageable, mm. you know. Um, what happened? I, you know, uh, it it went very quickly from four every four hours to eight every four hours to ultimately about fifteen every four hours. So you're doing a hundred a day. It was about sixty a day because I would stop to sleep at some point. You're lucky um, you didn't lose your hearing. Say again, <laughs> <laughs> um, because that's what happens when you go sixty or more. It was. Uh, it's uh, listen. It's a miracle that I'm sitting here talking yeah. to you, and, and and I know that. Um, so I uh, I was taking them. I couldn't function without them. Mm-hmm. Um, getting them was uh, at least initially easier than I anticipated that it, that it would be, which is obviously a huge problem. Um, I've been sober for 12 years and, and I'd like to think that it wouldn't be so easy now. It's better. To, it's a lot, it's a lot better. But there. then pain is whatever you say it is. Well, this is the yeah. thing, Whatever right? you say. You know, pain is one of the few things, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but pain seems to be one of the few things within the medical realm, if you will, that can't be tested for. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the honor system and a chart with a smiley face, you know, you know, where are you on this pain chart? One to ten. Well, it's really easy to say I'm at ten, you know. And the doctors were being litigated criminally and civilly for inadequate treatment of pain, not malpractice, criminal. Yes. So you could just go, I'm going to sue you for I'm su- for suffering. Right. That's it. Exactly. It's the fifth vital sign, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was very easy for me. And on top of that, I was – professional looking guy i was in a suit and tie most of the time even if i wasn't wearing a suit to work that day you have one to go to the doctor. i would to go to the doctor i would <laughs> i would put on a suit and not only that but i would limp into that office right. like i had just climbed out of a car wreck Okay. And then they see you dance, skipping down the street. It, totally. And I would start doing it down the street just in case – it was yeah. a very elaborate con, mm-hmm. right? Just in case a receptionist or the doctor or some nurse had been out running to get a cup of coffee or whatever right. they were getting. They, if they saw me walking normally, it would blow my cover. <laughs> so I would get out of a cab and I would hobble from the cab into the doctor's office. Hysterical. It was it – was, you know, a, a, did, did anybody ever doctor any suspect anything or confirm? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, 
not initially, uh, but after a couple of years of seeking treatment, and I was probably seeing three or four pain specialists regularly. Think about that. Pain specialists and they're being conned. It's so ridiculous. Yes. And so I – at one point, um, the receptionist they, – They, by the way, denied that happens. They still deny it happens. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And I'm here to tell you that it does happen. Oh, I saw it and, hundreds and thousands of times. And, yeah. and on top of that, that it wasn't <clears throat> terribly <sighs> difficult for me to do it. I would – Right, because they whatever you said went. Some of them wouldn't even have you see the doctor. They just have you specify what you want. There were times when I would just call in mm-hmm. and speak to a receptionist and say, hey, I'm traveling to Paris for some business yeah. trip. Yeah. Um, I – my script is going to run out while I'm there. Meanwhile, I had run out like two weeks ago. I was waiting. I would like mark the calendar mm-hmm. as to when I could get a refill. But what happened when someone called on is that I was coming more and more frequently well within the like month period to get to get a the, new the prescription. Yeah. And so the first couple of times they – took what I was saying and, and now what I would do though, They make you sign a contract saying, yeah, right. I won't lie to you. Yeah, like, exactly. That, what the hell? Yeah, that's nothing. It's, it's so, nothing. Um, I, but I would be super – I thought that I was like a mastermind, right? Yeah. I would have travel itineraries printed out. I would have my assistant say, call our travel agent and say, look, just can you set up a trip for me going from here to here to here and all European or international travel? And I would take that to the doctor's office and say, look, here it is in black and white. And it would never book the ticket. It would never go on the trip. But I would get – and they were writing for massive amounts. So I was probably seeing a handful of doctors. Um, each was giving me in the neighborhood of 250 to 340 Pills. I had moved on eventually Every from from Vicodin to Roxycodone, um, uh, which I think is a, has a 15 milligram offering, mm. and um, without the Tylenol. I mean, essentially, those first few years when I was taking all that Vicodin, I was also just ingesting like a small bottle of ty- extra Tylenol every day. Right, and uh, and I've I've seen many, many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of people in the same pattern, and there's something about the way. Opiate addiction gets gets uh, spooled up that you don't ever see liver toxicity ever, ever. Well, one case. I saw one case. Right. It's a your liver can adjust and develop enzymatic machinery to send it to a, a benign compound. Otherwise, if I took eight Tylenol right now, my liver would shut down in a couple of days. Right. So I, you know, had my body was was processing this stuff yeah. and and quite frankly was craving it and needing it and now listen one of the the sort of challenges of uh of, of this type of addiction is keeping yourself with in pill like ha- mm-hmm. keeping yourself stocked mm-hmm. right and particularly as it progresses and you start taking more and more and more so i went down to tijuana once and bought a thousand pills illegally and what do you mean illegally? I mean, I didn't have. I walked into a pharmacy without a prescription and bought a thousand. Aren't you allowed pills. to do that down there? <laughs> no. I mean, listen, m- m- maybe you yeah. know. Um, back then, you could do that. So I would just sort of drove them back in, yeah. and and uh, you know was worried about drug sniffing dogs at the border and all of that, and you know I had a million near misses, um, but managed to 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 make it work. Well, I even called prescription in 
you Ooh, know, that's dangerous uh, for, yourself. For, for myself. Oh, boy. You know, I don't know that you can call – that doctors can call them, them in anymore, no. but mm-hmm. certainly I, they could back then because yep. I'd seen it. Hey, pain – opiates were the answer. They oh, understand? They were going to solve everything. That's exactly right. And that is because, you know, as you know, that the pharmaceutical company – No, it was not. It was the pain management world. Yeah, but – And the lawyers that were putting doctors in prison for inadequate treatment of pain. I was living through it and it froze us. We all froze in place when all those the attorneys started coming at us with inadequate pain treatment and everyone became fearful of treating pain patients. So we sent them all to the pain management right. and I saw a million things like your story where they, they literally said, this is a white hat profession. You, meaning me, you're a dinosaur. You're interested in suffering. You don't know anything. about Addict never happens with addiction, with opiates. They don't get addicted. This is just what they need for their pain. And by the way, if you have pain, it absorbs. I've literally had them say, I get so upset when I hear this, when I talk about this. The pain absorbs the addictive potential, it absorbs the euphoria. Right. Don't you understand that? This was what I was living through. And I was going, fuck no, my patients are dying. You are killing my patients one after the other after the next. Drug companies never involved with any of it. But now, they were duplicitous. Well, they were duplicitous. They were, they were definitely duplicitous. Yeah, yeah. But, but weren't they also, um, you know, quote unquote, educating the medical community that. That was the pain management people. They wow. would pay okay. for them to go out and give their. But this was. The, these people thought they were, they were the shit. They were the white hat profession. The rest, you don't know what you're doing. It's always been a solution in the right. opiate plant, and you are you, me, have an opiophobia, and you and maybe you should lose your license. I would get stuff like that all the time. I was under attack, and then the see the state medical societies adopted this. The Department of Mental Health, the local everybody adopted the pain as the fifth vital sign. And I had patients I was trying to get off drugs and were miserable and right. in pain for a couple of days. Oh my God! The stuff I went through to try to to protect my patients—it was unbelievable. Drug companies never got involved in any way. All of this then made it incredibly easy for me to keep, to keep going. Of course, and you weren't an addict. What are you talking about? And if, and if I had if I had called that pain management doctor, they would have they would have um, excoriated me, excoriated me. That man, don't you understand the pain he's in? Oh yes, I've had I've had other pain doctors. Lie down in front of the patient and don't say, don't touch them. You can't get them. So then why did I have to sign that bullshit contract? Because that's, they believed that was all they needed to, to structure your pain, your pain management and also protect themselves a little bit. But right. it, was, it really was, this is all you need. I, we need to agree how we're going to do this. And then how we're going to do this is whatever you tell me you need. <laughs> it's crazy. So if, if, and they put people on benzodiazepines at the same time. Do you I, yes, yes. Yeah. I was and prescribed so That's a fatal well. combination. You're yeah. so lucky to be here. That's how people die. It's inc- I'm incredibly lucky to yeah. be here and because um, I would take them as well. I would take – certainly in the evening, my biggest highs were, were at night, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I was hiding in plain sight. I had a high-powered media job, a high-profile media job. An outward-facing media job. So I was interacting with people. I was hosting movie premieres and talking to celebrities and doing all of these things. And on the outside, everything looked normal. And on the inside, I was was falling apart, mm-hmm. right? So um, – but yeah, they would prescribe me the benzos. They would – you know, and, and the obviously – It's murder. 
It's a murderous combination. It's it's extraordinary. Yeah. It's extraordinary. The drug companies have something to do with that? No. Well, then how how are they then uh, being forced to pay these huge settlements? Now? Yes. Because the, the AG got involved. The federal government came in and started just laying it down. Right. And it just – and again, it froze again. Same thing happened going the other way. Right. Everyone just stopped prescribing opiates. Everyone was afraid to do anything. It actually went too far. Well, you can't even get opiates for surgeries and things now. Uh, the scared doctors are scared. You scare doctors, they stop. That That's what happens. Uh, and it stops them. And when the attorneys start doing their thing and, and it steps outside of malpractice now. Right. And you are personally, criminally and civilly liable for everything, they, they'll have nothing to do with it. They just freeze. Well, listen, I, I was able to kind of skate by and um, it's – Well, they've only been the last year. That it finally stopped. Okay, so so this it, was in the early two yeah. thousands or mid, you know, it's, like, the federal government. It was actually Jeff Sessions that came in and just laid it down, just before he lost his job. <laughs> right. It's uh, it's it's a pretty extraordinary thing. So, um, and and I'll tell you this: once I realized that I was an addict, and I realized that pretty pretty quickly. Um, I actually sat next to you on a plane once. Weird. I was super – like you killed my buzz because I was like, oh, fuck. I'm sitting next to Dr. Drew. He's going to absolutely know that I'm high. And I really looked forward to airplane highs, right? <laughs> because particularly like a New York to LA flight, which is what this was. Yeah. And you know, they give you a little video monitor. The lights are dim. No one's seeing what you're doing. Now, taking pills is very easy. It's not yeah. like, um, you know, you can't smell it on my breath. I'm right. not, you don't see me doing anything. It's, it's something that was very easy to mask. But I was f- next to you on a, on a flight from, uh, from New York to LA. And I was like, wow, man, what a buzzkill. <laughs> this guy's going to know. He, this is what he does. Uh, I mean, I was, it was a very unpleasant experience. <laughs> no, no, no offense. Um, uh, but uh, once I really truly recognized that I had a problem, um, it still I still carried on for years mm. because stopping it was was just unbelievably hard. Mm-hmm. Um, initially, I wanted to do it on my own, right, which is not recommended. But that's and, what everyone and, tries. Well, yeah, I, I didn't want to. I was ashamed, and yeah. and uh, I didn't want to embarrass myself, my family. I didn't want to lose my job. Um, and so, uh, but you, it's very, very difficult to do it on your own, as yeah, you know, and, uh, it doesn't really work yeah. or if it does seldom at best. Never. Um, and so I then started getting, uh, seeing an addiction specialist who would give me buprenorphine injections right. that I would shoot into my leg. Jesus. And, um, and I really think if I'm being honest that I just went to see him to help deal with whatever withdrawal symptoms I was going through when I hit a dry spell yeah, and, and couldn't get a new that's prescription. What, that's what people do. And so I was like, all right, you know what? And I would go in there. That's and how I, the patients use buprenorphine. And I would weep and I would, I'm done. This is going to, you know, I want my life back. I would say all this shit just to get these, <laughs> to get these injections. And, and then I would get a, fill a script, you know, two or three days later having ha, ha, had the injections help me. Uh, help hold me, hold me Bridge, over, yeah. you know, uh, exactly. And so, um, 
it's just brutal, brutal, brutal. I started spending less and less time in the office. Mm. Uh, listen, I, I had a meeting once with Mike Tyson on the roof of a building in Harlem. We were putting him on the cover of the magazine <laughs> and um, uh, his team had, had called me up and said, we'd really love for you to meet Mike. He had a great relationship with John Kennedy Jr. He needs stable presence in his life. And listen, as I write in the book, nothing like fluffs a very fragile ego like potentially being compared to, to John Kennedy Jr. And I was like, I'm your man, <laughs> you know? Because I figured, look, I could, if, I, I could con a train wreck like Mike Tyson, you know? I met him on the roof of this building in Harlem where he kept pigeons. It was an incredibly, like, oppressively hot mm. uh, fall day, like September day. I was wearing a suit and I had taken a handful of pills and I would swallow pills the way some people like take popcorn in the movie theater and just jam it into their mouth. I, I would do it. I would get them all down with like one sip of water. And um, by the time I met with Tyson on the roof of this building, I was swaying and sweating and and like bleary eyed. It was like I had just taken a punch from him in the rain. <laughs> And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to fall off the roof of this building. I mean, it was, it was, it was just awful. And so, but I went through my life like this, you know, and, and, um, would go home for the holidays and high as a kite and would travel out to LA a lot. I eventually, um, developed a friendship with a, with a rock star who was also an, an opiate addict, uh, and someone that I had, um, you know, whose music I had been listening to since I was a teenager. And uh, because, again, as I write, you know, like addicts tend to be able to identify each other the way vampires can can tell when you're not human. I, I had a, a very talented woman I worked with who was doing – going through the struggle and she decided she was going to stop her heroin and what was going to cure her heroin addiction was – she had been adopted from Europe. She was going to go back and find her roots. That was the problem. That's the answer. And the answer. Uh, so she was sober a month and uh, – clean a month, not really serious about it or not really active in any kind of program but doing going through some motions. And she said she had a layover in London before she went to if she went to Hungary, Yugoslavia, or something. And uh, she had like a twelve-hour layover, so she went to the National Gallery in London. And she said she hadn't been in the gallery ten minutes before she was slamming heroin with the security guard in the main gallery. Yeah, how would you you walk up to the guy with the with the with the baton? Addicts <laughs> know each other. They just know. They, it. they, they, they know, know each it. other, and it's it's it's, it's very very it's easy uncanny. To recognize. It's uncanny. Much in the same way that people in recovery can find each other yep. very quickly. Yep. You know, which is yep. which is interesting. So I befriended this rock star, and before you know it, I, you know, we were doing drugs together, and he had this limo driver who could get drugs, and so the limo driver. I started coming out to L.A. all the time. Just to get picked up at the airport by this driver, and would uh, would just get drugs and hang out with the rock star and 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 do drugs and and um, it was challenging though because the rock star was taking oxycontin and would crush them up snort and them. snort them, which I would do when I was with him, but it made it very difficult for me to know how how many I was taking. You were used to titrating with the pills. I, I really was, mm -hmm. and I was I was. You know, I fancied myself a master chemist at this point, and I knew, all right, I'm probably not going to die if I stop here. Mm. 
And I, I mean, that's how fucked up it is, yeah, yeah. right? Because there were also nights where I would be like, you know what? I'm going to take probably a couple more because I'm not feeling the lift that I need from this. It could kill me, but like, probably fuck not. It. Probably not. Right. I, I should be fine. Yeah. And I would, I would wake up in the morning and just sort of take stock for a second of the fact that I was alive. Mm. Brutal. Yeah, yeah, crazy. Just, just absolutely. How, how was your life falling apart other than you were? Staying out here with the rock star. You know, um, the cracks were definitely beginning to show because here I was running this magazine, but I was in the office uh, very infrequently, you know, with increasing, you know, infrequency. So I would – or if I was there, I would come in for two to four hours and do what needed to be done and then I would leave. I started nodding out at the office. I actually did a job interview with someone. I was interviewing them for a job at the magazine and I nodded out in the resume in hand in the middle of that interview. We offered the guy the job and he declined. Hmm. So um, listen, it, it was brutal. I would go to emergency rooms in the middle of the night because I was out. And I thought, okay, I can con some exhausted young doctor in an emergency room. I went to St. Vincent's Hospital in Greenwich Village, which is no longer there. It's like now like eight-figure condos. But I went once in a tuxedo thinking that that would convince them that I wasn't just your average junkie looking for pills. While I was in the sort of triage area, I had just changed into a blue paper gown that they'd given me. I was seated across from a woman in a pink paper gown who was repeatedly flashing herself to me and taking those um, single like uh, alcohol wipes and um, uh, opening the package, rubbing them all over her face, dropping them on the floor. And then she would take another one all over, and flashing me all of this. So when I finally sit down with the doctor – I say to him, wow, you won't believe – because I would always try to be as normal and conversational as possible no matter how shitty I was feeling. Yeah. Um, and I explained to the doctor, wow, there's this woman was just doing all this sort of weird stuff. And he said, what color gown was she wearing? Was it pink? And I said, how would you know that? You know? And he said, well, we give pink gowns to the people that we think are potentially psychiatric concerns. Right, right. Three months later, I go back in the middle of the night to St. Vincent's Hospital – I'm not wearing a tuxedo this time. And I was going through a particularly awful case they of put you in pink. They put you in pink. The triage nurse looked at me. She said, it's going to be a few minutes, but why don't you go ahead and put this gown on and handed me a pink paper gown. You knew right then. And I left immediately. Oh. So um, it, was, it was obviously very clear to some people that were paying attention or that, were, you know, that, that, I, that I had a problem. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know – could you could lie? You know, you know, addicts will do anything to protect the addiction. Yep. And I did anything to pr- protect the addiction. It was my number one, and in many cases, only priority. Well, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven priorities. Easily. That's it. And so, so um, work, children, and nutrition, all stuff. None matter. of that, Doesn't right? Matter. And thankfully, I wasn't a father yet at that yeah. point. But um, it was all I cared about, right? Mm-hmm. Getting more. Taking them. I've had people say they can't kill themselves because they couldn't do that to their drugs. They love them so much. Absolutely. You understand that? Yes. I got to the point where I could look at one of those like orange opaque prescription bottles and tell you how many pills were sure. in it at a glance. Yeah. The way you know on Halloween you have to guess how many how much candy corn yeah. is in the jar. Yeah. I could look at it and say, all right, I have about thirty five pills in there. That's going to get me through to tomorrow morning. Mm. 
And um, it was it was awful, just absolutely awful. I want to introduce you to Health IQ. They use science and data to secure lower rates for people like you for their life insurance. Like you're a runner, a cyclist, a vegetarian, vegan, you need to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risk, I think you know this, for heart disease, cancer, and diabetes. But Health IQ is not just a lead generator. They take the customer through the entire process of applying, and the policy is underwritten by one of our top insurance partners. But the savings are exclusive to Health IQ. You won't find them anywhere else, and you must qualify to get that special rate. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash Drew, not Dr. Drew, just Drew, and take their proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending on your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to other providers. Again, that is healthiq.com slash Drew to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment, and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthy. One more time, that is healthiq.com slash Drew. If you like my show, you're going to love Showmance with Kevin McHale and Jenna Ushkowitz on Podcast One. Join the former Glee stars as the best and bit. Join the former Glee stars and best friends as they interview other dynamic duos about the wild ups and downs of balancing a relationship on set. Download new episodes of Showmance with Kevin McHale and Jenna Ushkowitz every week on Podcast One. And so you started wanting to stop. Why? I, I eventually oh, – that's a good question. I, you know, I started wanting to stop because I was scared I was going to die. Mm. I, Did you have any overdoses or anything? Yes. I mm. overdosed fairly regularly. Okay. Um, I was uh, not breathing. You know, I was uh, sleeping one night with a, with a girlfriend who woke – I woke up with her literally like on top of me, shaking me aggressively saying like you're holding your breath and gasping for air. Moments like that, I would come away and say, wow, this is bad. Or vomiting in random places, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like unexpectedly. Um, like, okay, this is, this is really bad. Um, uh, so I, I said, I said to myself, okay, look, this, I need to wind this down. But typical sort of addict reasoning, you know, I'll just do it on weekends or I'll just do it after work. Listen, that's obviously we, we both know that's a joke. Yeah. So I eventually needed to stop. I had in this time uh, met and married my wife, mm. and toward the very end of this, you know, horrible, horrible, you know, um, addiction, uh, she got pregnant. And I was going to become a father. And that was it for me. I was like, all right, I really, really, really need to stop. In many ways, Mm. um, she saved my life because she discovered that I was taking the pills and basically threw me out. Uh, And uh, so I did what, you know, any sort of self-respecting, you know, Jewish man would do. I went to my mom and um, (laughs) literally went to my mother's house in Baltimore and I, for two weeks, went through a detox and went through withdrawal. I went to my first AA meeting down in Baltimore. Um, 
I remember that meeting so so clearly. I walked in and was terrified and mm-hmm. wasn't sure what to expect and wasn't sure I was even in the right place because it was an AA meeting and it turned out to be the right place for me. But uh, I remember in that meeting, uh, a young guy stood up and said, uh, I have six months today. And I thought, holy shit, I cannot believe. How did this guy go six months? Right. In the very same meeting, a guy stood up and said, I had 27 years and I was on a flight and the flight attendant asked me if I wanted a drink and I said yes. So I was shit scared (laughs) but I detoxed in Baltimore, took a train back to New York, on that train – called a doctor to get a prescription. Mm. That's how powerful this addiction is. Oh, oh, I know. And I went and I took about a day's worth of pills and then I stopped. And um, I became a dad 92 days after my sobriety date. I got sober in October of 2007. My oldest son was born in January of 2008. Uh, And I have, thank God, a day at a time, been sober since. When do you start going to meetings in earnest? I started going to meetings in earnest um, after coming back to New York, taking a handful of pills, waking up the following morning, shoes on, clothes on, and I had a real like what the fuck moment. What are you doing? You're about to be a father. You just spent two weeks. You went to your first meeting. And from that moment on, I went to meetings every day. Where'd you go? Was it a home meeting somewhere? Yeah. I went to uh, the um, Citicorp. Uh, building in in Midtown Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a seven thirty a.m. meeting. They had meetings like kind of throughout the day, uh, and that became my home group. Yeah, City Corp has has a bunch. Yeah, City, no, I think, I I think they may be called City Group. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and and um, and I went to that seven thirty a.m. meeting every day. And and a guy, you know, maybe my first week there, handed, gave me a marble. He said, I, "I want you to have this marble. Keep it with you. Keep it in your pocket." Um, so if you ever feel like you've lost your marbles, here's a marble. And I held on to that mm. marble like it was some ancient relic <laughs> that had been blessed by some high priest somewhere. Actually, I was going through Times Square once and this was back in the day where people would collect money for the homeless in those big five-gallon like water jugs. You know, that you, yep. um, And I dropped some change in and I accidentally dropped my marble in there. <gasps> and I stood there on the sidewalk in the middle of Times Square and I dumped that five-gallon oh. thing out so I could get my marble. Um, but I eventually got my marbles back. Yep. And um, – yeah, but it's a lot of work, you know, and, and it continues to be a lot of work. Mm. Um, but uh, it's it's incredibly gratifying. And, and I thought, you know what, I, I need to sit down and write some of these stories really just for me, at least initially, you know. But when I was struggling, I read addiction memoirs because they gave me hope. Mm-hmm. I also remember very vividly watching the movie Ray. Uh, you know, with Jamie Foxx, and he was a massive heroin addict, mm-hmm. Ray Charles. And I remember seeing him get clean in that movie and thinking, holy shit, okay, this can be done. And and so I just figured, you know, I'm going to write my story, and, mm-hmm. and I hope, you know, that, that it might, even if it impacts one person, you know. Sure. That's uh, um, needed for pain. Yeah, as needed for pain, mm-hmm. uh, which just seemed like the perfect title for for what I was doing. You know? 
Was there any more slipping around after that first pill there bomb? Was, there was no more slipping around after really? that. And, uh, and I'm incredibly blessed. And um, it's, it's a miracle that I'm sitting here talking to you right now. And I know that every time I read about some, someone ODing and dying, mm. I obviously it's tragic. It's horrible. But I – it truly is but for the grace of God. You yeah, know, like yeah. I'm, I'm incredibly, incredibly lucky to, to be here. Uh, but I was also very lucky to have um, – to be in New York City, to have treatment options available to me, to have AA meetings available around the clock. Uh, I did uh, an IOP. I did uh, an outpatient uh, gr- treatment in New Program. York City. Oh, good. Um, and, and I took it. And continue to take it very seriously. I think as we look at this, you know, what is a national health crisis right mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. Um, the, it, it can't be easier to get the drug than it is to get the treatment in, 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 in my view, right? Mm-hmm. And there are Rust Belt communities being wiped out. There are lives being ruined every day. I saw some statistic recently that said about 130 people die from an opiate-related overdose every day. It's now fent- – well, three – in Los Angeles, they're dying all the time. It, it's fentanyl and heroin though now. OK. Yeah. OK. And so- primarily fentanyl. And because when the doctors cut everybody off, they didn't call them in and go, you have a disease called addiction. We didn't intend this to happen. Let's go get it treated. They just said, you're a bad patient. Get out of here. Right. And so – Then the heroin kicks in. Right. And, and let's be clear, right? Yeah. I, I, it, it, again, you're the, you're, this is your mm-hmm. field. Yeah. Um, but it's my belief that anyone that takes opiates – it's not, not unlike nicotine, right? Mm-hmm. Anyone that takes opiates for a certain amount of time habitually, whatever that – time period is. In my case, it was a very short period of time. Becomes addicted. Well, no. You have to have a genetic potential for it. You can become dependent. Okay, be, fine. But you're not going to become an addict because the dependents can look like addicts when they're using, but when they stop, they don't go back. Right. They're not interested anymore. And the addict goes back. And how do they stop? Do they do they stop? <clears throat> do they wean? Do they just the stop? doesn't work. <laughs> they, they, they have someone – someone manages their withdrawal. Okay. Yeah. So um, – in in my case, though, it was it was it was just really 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 brutal. That's brutal, yeah. You know, um, so you know, and this is this is a huge crisis. Did now. the drug addict get uh, the? I'm sorry, the rock star get uh, treated? Did you get him? Uh, I, I can't say because that that friendship ended. Um, but there, uh, so I so I honestly I don't know. Um, but the. Um, uh, the rock star started asking me for money mm. because, despite having you know accumulated a, a, an extraordinary amount of wealth over the course of his life and career, he um, w- he was being watched very closely by his ex-wives and by his accountant, who had known that he had had a drug uh, ongoing drug problem. Right. And couldn't spend, couldn't withdraw fifteen hundred dollars cash to get the to, pills. To, to get the pills. Yeah. So we had this very bizarre conversation one night where he was like, "Hey, man, like, can you get this? You know?" And uh, I was like, "Okay, <laughs> you know, but what's going on?" And um, it, it eventually, you know, he explained, "Listen, I'm just, you know, I, I just don't have access to to cash like that, you know." Um, 
Uh, and so I sort of ca- carried him um, and uh, happily though, I guess, because it was someone else that was in it with me, yeah. right? Misery yeah. loves company. And while it didn't feel like misery at the time, it most certainly was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, we have a problem on our streets now is where everybody – that's where they've all spilled out now. That's where, that's where you find them. Not the pain clinics anymore so much, although they still got a few of them because the pain doctors are recalcitrant, recalcitrant. So you know, how do we deal with that? Is that does that happen at the state level? Does it happen at the federal level? How do, how do we my get profession. more treatment options available? Oh, for drug addicts? Yes. Um we're struggling with that right now. And and how do you move people into treatment too? Because you can't force anybody into treatment. And by the way, they do poorly when you force them into treatment. Well, yeah, I mean they have um, to want to be there. Right. And they you know, listen, I mean that's that's the that's the uh that the, was the answer for the, me anyway. The like, other thing right. is they they're now bringing meth on top of the opiates, which is a horrible combination. So we're seeing a lot of that. It is um yeah, I mean it's wiping out mm-hmm. tons and tons of people. Mm-hmm. But if you obviously you can't force anyone to get sober and I know that. I mean you can. It's not that you can't. It's that they just don't do as well. But we're in such desperate straits that um, maybe we need to really create motivation somehow. Right? Like really hold a, a strong legal stick over their head. But as we approach a, uh, an election year, mm-hmm. right? Um and and no doubt candidates will be talking about this epidemic. What what is is there is there a federal solution to this other than uh, have to funding? Change, you have to change those tons of funding. There's funding. Have, they, they don't not, only ten percent of drug addicts get treatment. Okay, not because they don't have access. So recently they did a study and they talked to that ninety percent. Why aren't you getting treatment? Eighty percent of the ninety percent said, "Why? I don't want treatment." Fuck you. Right. Which is precisely what I would have said also. Right. You right. know. In fact and So you have to create some motivation somehow or they're gonna die. Right. And I would argue that we have to have very strong legal sticks and carrots in, in place. I, I suspect we do. When I when I got when one of the doctor's offices eventually caught on and and this incredibly lovely um, office manager said, Hey, listen, we think you have a problem. And we can't continue to treat you. I, I, I was so offended. I put on such a show of uh, of outrage that you would even suggest I have a problem. So they're not used to dealing with that. To me, I would have just gone, "Oh my god, you're so funny! <laughs> Give me a break!" <laughs> you know. And but they get panicky and think they made a mistake and never don't won't confront the next guy. Right. Right. And listen, and to their credit, they cut me off. They did. But it's not the way to deal. You don't cut you off. Let's bring you in and have you treated. You're not a bad patient. They did it. He strung you out. It's, uh, and, uh, yeah. And so, uh, but the, the, you know, I could flip open the yellow pages. That happened back then. And there was a whole section, a whole page of, go from one to the next, of pain doctors. And I knew the names of the pain doctors in the tri state area. Like some people know the, like starting lineups of their hometown baseball teams. I knew who was where, who was affiliated with which hospital, who was likely to prescribe. Uh, I mean, it, it became my occupation. Mm-hmm. It really did. I get it. 
and and um, did you keep your job through all this? I did keep my job through all of this, which is just extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm. And um, and I had it until they closed details in 2015. And those and I'll tell you this. Uh, the pills didn't make me more productive. They what? didn't. They didn't they give didn't. me more energy. They didn't make me more creative. My ideas were not better. Or were, it, it, it. My life improved dramatically. My relationships with people improved dramatically. I was present in my life. Really, probably, if I'm being honest, for the first time. Mm-hmm. Right. And, did you have some trauma as a kid or something? You know, I I I, I didn't. I I think um, I I never felt, and this is a you hear this commonly amongst addicts, alcoholics. Um, I never felt like I fit in. I felt like everybody had been given a manual, boys, girls, men, women, on how to go through life, and when they got to me, they had run out of manuals, and I just was never comfortable in my own skin, and I never felt like one of the guys yeah. ever. Yeah. And so I escaped through magic. I was really into magic. Actually, magic factors heavily in my story. David Copperfield factors heavily in my story. Um, so I would like hide in, in your my recovery. Yes. So wow. I, 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 I grew up. Um, just being a total magic nerd. Did you right? go visit him in Vegas in that storefront? With the yeah, museum? I've been there. <laughs> I've been there. And so I would watch his specials. He had this like CB, uh, CBS special every year that I would tape on VHS. And um, I would watch it over and over and over again, trying to figure out how he did this, that, and the other thing. I eventually had a chance to interview him uh, when I was working for W Magazine. And then meet him again when I was at details and we developed a friendship. Mm. And when my wife threw pregnant wife threw me out uh, of the house, uh, when I came back to New York, I went to David Copperfield mm. and I said, I need a place to stay. And D- I'm an, I'm an addict and David was incredibly generous and, nice. and kind. And so I got sober really in his, his house in New York. Um, and, uh, and, and that was that, you know. So, um, but I, so that, so no, no trauma. But I just never felt like I fit in. Yeah. And and of course, uh, you know, my brother was the star athlete, the star student, was incredibly popular with with girls. My closest friend, the same thing. I always felt like just this. I was the the. The buddy. I was the, you know, I was Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I was like every character ever played by Anthony Michael Hall. I was <laughs> the guy that just, that the girls would, would, would complain to about their problems with the guys and hug me before going off with the other guy. Right. I, and, and so I just, you know, f- isolated and, and, um, found my way into this really extraordinary career, which mm-hmm. I'm grateful for. Um, but really, uh, had a mask on and, um, you know, hid, you know, in a bottle of pills and it's a pretty common, you know, I had some, there are some uncommon elements to my story, Yeah, but it's, it's, it is a very, it, it is common. a story of our time for it, sure. It really is. It uh, really is. Think about Prince and anybody else you can think of that died of exactly what you went through. They just, yes, died of it. I know. And it was always the same, opiate benzo, opiate benzo, opiate benzo, always. I mean, it's extraordinary. 
Yeah. You know, and so the benzos are still being overprescribed. Still. So what? What gives? You know, like they don't understand addiction. My my peers do not understand addiction. They don't get it. You have to see it a lot and really understand it. And and one of the and one of the key core problems is my peers are offended by the idea when I approach them on this notion that they shouldn't believe their patients. How I have a tr- the foundation of my relationship is trust. Right. I have to trust my patients. I, no. You have to figure out what's going on right. and give do the right thing for your patient. They're lying all the time. And addicts like all the time. Listen, I mean Constantly. lying is the number one side effect. If, of, if my patients didn't lie, their diagnosis would be in question. Right. It's like, not an addict if they're not lying to you. I lied uh, my ass off. Yeah. And, 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 and so all the research is built on reporting from the patients. All the addiction research. Yeah. Or unobserved urines. Forget it. Or if they don't show up, well, they're lost to follow up, not they're using. Right. Unbelievable. So all the research is flawed. No one is trained properly in how to actually manage the person. They, they, your buprenorphine prescriber, there's lots of those out there. Yeah. They don't, they don't understand addiction. Uh, you know, uh, someone told me uh, very recently that um, throughout the sort of uh, edu- the, the years of education that it takes to become an MD, so uh, whatever that is, whatever uh, undergraduate courses you're taking, it's twelve years, so twelve average. years, right? That's a short. That that with, within that sort of short twelve year period, yeah. there's really only a few hours dedicated to. Uh, I'm an addictionologist. The only training I had. Was we visited an AA meeting, which I didn't understand what was even happening at a a so-called rehab unit, which is actually a, a stroke rehab unit in uh, Downey. <laughs> okay, so that was the only training, and that's an hour. AA meetings are generally we didn't we were in there now. We were there half an hour. Okay. that was the and we talked to an alcoholic maybe for ten minutes. So what's wrong with that picture? And, and by right? the way, the whole time working at a county hospital took care of tons of alcoholics and heroin addicts and did not address their underlying disease at all. We were just dealing with all the medical problems that they caused. Never dealt with the the underlying condition right. ever ever. I think one of except one to of, tell them to stop using. Right? Yeah, sure. Stop doing <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah. You know, get yourself together. One of the reasons that I I wanted to write this book was to help in any way that I could with my story to destigmatize. Once you go back to the pain doctors that were doing all the prescribing, go. You don't know what addiction is. Right. And I, and I was in your midst for years. I hope you're doing better with it. Yeah, they, I mean, they never learn because no one ever comes back. I eventually called all of them and said, "Hey, I'm a drug addict. Don't prescribe to me. Don't prescribe yeah. me any medication." That's different than going back, going, "Listen, I'm here to try to teach you. When you don't believe your patient, right. I lied to you for five years. I'll send them my book, you know, if yeah. nothing else." But it was um, the hard part for me was uh, was not getting more. You know, the hard part for me was 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 stopping and and um you know but but getting them listen there were challenges for sure but getting them was uh you know was it's certainly at least in New York City back in in the early well, most 2000s. people give up and switch to heroin it's cheaper yeah, easier yeah it's all over the place I actually went one night here in L A to try to get heroin um I I've never done heroin but I tried one night to get it. And uh, went. This was the night that I met the rock star mm. and that limo driver, and we dropped the rock star off behind his gate, 
And uh, I said to the limo driver, hey, um, the magazine that I work for is doing a story on, you know, well-known celebrities getting drugs. Like, where would they go? Can you show me <laughs> one of these areas? Is there like a skid row? Like, yeah. or is that like a thing that, that you just hear about? And he took me to some pretty seedy area and I got out of the car and he said, you sure you want to walk around? And and uh, I, I went and um, asked for, for heroin from some guys that, that approached me saying, hey, what's up? Uh, and I was chased away. Either they thought I was a cop oh, or yeah, whatever sure. it was. Uh, I was. I got chased back to the car, and that's when the dr- the limo driver said to me, "Hey, man, what are you looking for?" <laughs> you know. And and initially, I was like, "Dude, just take me to my hotel." And he persisted, and I told him, and he said, "I got you." Mm-hmm. You know. So I I came this close to 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 doing heroin. Crazy. You know. Talk about recovery for the last couple of minutes. Uh, you know, recovery is as much a priority for me now as the drugs were when I was active. Has to be a little more. It, well, yeah, listen, a little more because it, it, it feels better. It, well, it feels much better. But I, I, I think I, I put as much energy into the recovery uh, as I did into the drugs, and I put a lot of energy into the drugs. Yeah. Um, my my life is radically different now. Uh, I'm a dad. I have three beautiful boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have only ever known me as a sober man. Uh, which is a, which is a blessing because mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time in meetings. I still go to meetings sometimes three four times a week, right. um, and you know you hear stories in these meetings of people trying to repair broken relationships with their kids. Um, it is it's heartbreaking. So I, I really that's a blessing for me. Any um, do you, do you, are you sponsoring other people? I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, I have sponsees. Um, I have a sponsor. Uh, I work the steps. Um, you know, I own my shit. I'm present for my life. Um, and, uh, but listen, as they say, like, we're not saints, right? Like I can still be irritable. I can still be a dick. And, but when I am, I recognize it very quickly, sometimes immediately. And I immediately apologize. Like, Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm sorry I spoke to you that way or like whatever. I'm just having a bad day or whatever it is. I know how to self-diagnose. You're like, hey, why am I – why did I just snap at one of my kids mm-hmm. or or why did I just grow irritable with with this person or that person? And, and you know, I own my stuff, you know. So for me, my recovery uh, is is incredibly important. Uh, the meetings are incredibly important. The fellowship of the twelve step program is incredibly important. And now there's evidence that twelve step. Finally, we have evidence basis for twelve step that's as effective or more than any other form of treatment, especially when abstinence is your goal. And abstinence was my goal and remains my goal. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's a there's a discernible, very noticeable difference that I can detect within myself, and I suspect others might be able to detect in me mm-hmm. if I miss meetings for for a couple of days Mm -hmm. i just am a little bit more on edge and it's not that i'm gonna reach for a bottle of pills and 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 grab them i I, you know it's that could happen Mm -hmm. right it's a daily reprieve Mm -hmm. but it's just it's behave it becomes behavioral uh, behavioral Mm. and uh so i can tell like hey like i'm a little off or why am i being a dick or whatever it is and um so recovery is everything. Without my recovery, 
I don't have anything else in my life. Right. I do a, a gratitude list uh, with a bunch of guys in sobriety. It's done over email. It's, we call it the reply all list. And um, it's meant to be done daily. None of us really do it daily, but we, we have good sort of spurts where we're, we're all sort of in it. And uh, my sobriety is number one on that list every time because without it, nothing else on that list matters. Right. You've said it all, as Stern would say. You've <laughs> said it all. Uh, Gary, any questions if you get the story? No, it's a wild yeah, story. A I, I wish story. I hadn't heard one like it so many times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, it's great. That's awesome that you were able to get past it. And, I, you know, congratulations, man. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. The I, book is uh, available now based on when this will air. I'm not okay. sure if we highlighted that. But um, this is going to come out, and the book will have dropped yesterday. As Needed for Pain, A Memoir of Addiction. Uh, get the details of what we sketched <laughs> over today. And uh, and if you know anyone struggling or a family member of anyone uh, in and around these conditions, hand it to them, and they'll sort of it helps break through their denial when they see these stories, uh, and understand that uh, <laughs> that taking as needed for pain is not not addiction. <laughs> Correct. It's like you know they they whenever they I I know you got way out of the prescribing range but sometimes people will even stay within what's being prescribed and be completely strung out. Right. Oh, I have no doubt. I have no doubt. I mean I've met tons of people that have yeah. that like, you know, have what they what they refer to as low grade addictions. Mm-hmm. They're only taking two at a time. Yeah. Um and it doesn't matter how much you're taking. It still can have enough consequence on their life. I appreciate you being here. Uh the again the Twitter is at Dan Paris New York and why? Uh Instagram at Dan underscore Paris, P-E-R-E-S. Uh, did I get it? Is there a website or anything? Or What are you doing for a living right now? What's that? What are you doing for a living? You're not... I am right now. I'm prom- promoting my book okay. and, and trying to get the word out. Um, and then I will will um, hopefully jump back into editing. Great. Good to see you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate Thank it. See you all next time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.